The Blunt Post with Vic. Good morning and welcome to The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, the editor and publisher of The Blunt Post. The Blunt Post with Vic is a program that covers national breaking and headline news, offers analysis and commentary, and I interview members of Congress and other high-profile public figures. On each show, I also highlight an outstanding organization, such as a nonprofit, a charity, a cause, or even an exceptional individual who does great work in the community. I have two great interviews for you today after the headlines. The first one is with George Gascon, who is running for LA District Attorney against the incumbent Jackie Lacey, followed by Hal Bastian, who is being called Mr. Downtown LA. Hal and I will chat about downtown and what is happening there during COVID-19. So stay tuned. President Trump enters the Republican National Convention in an unusual position for an incumbent. He's trailing, but it's not just that he's trailing, he's trailing by a lot. A new ABC News Washington Post poll finds that Vice President Joe Biden is at 53% to President Trump's 41% nationally among registered voters. The Washington Post obtained the previously unreleased transcripts and audio from President Trump's niece, Mary Trump, author of a recent bombshell book about the president. Mary Trump, who has said that Donald Trump is unfit to be president and has voiced support for his rival Joe Biden, revealed to the Post that she had secretly taped 15 hours of face-to-face conversations with Barry in 2018 and 2019. In the tapes, Marianne Trump Barry, her aunt, bitterly criticized her brother, President Trump, saying, Donald's out for Donald, and appeared to confirm her niece Mary Trump's previous allegations that he had had a friend take his SATs to get into college, according to audio excerpts. The Attorney General William Barr told Rupert Murdoch, who was the head of Fox News, to muzzle Andrew Napolitano, a prominent Fox News personality who became a critic of Donald Trump, according to a new book about the right-wing TV network. New York federal prosecutors on Thursday charged President Donald Trump's former advisor, Steve Bannon, and three others with defrauding donors of hundreds of thousands of dollars as part of a fundraising campaign supposedly aimed at supporting Trump's border wall. Bannon was arrested in Connecticut on the yacht of exiled Chinese dissident Guomo Wengui and, ironically, by the U.S. Postal Service officials. Let's get blunt. For today's Let's Get Blunt, I want to talk about Tom Brenneman's homophobic slur, which hit a little too close to home for me and should be talked about. It's made national news and for good reason. So for those of you who have not followed the story, Fox Sports Ohio play-by-play broadcaster Tom Brenneman made a homophobic slur during last Wednesday's doubleheader between the Cincinnati Reds and Kansas City Royals. Brenneman, who believed that his mic was off, referred to somewhere as one of the F capitals of the world. F being very homophobic, derogatory term that's used against the LGBTQ community. Now, Cincinnati Reds have since suspended Tom, but is that enough? And what's worse is that he has attempted to, and I quote, apologize twice, both of them very fake and disingenuine and transparent. We don't really know what he's sorry about. His first botched apology was written by PR company Steinlight Media, and in his statement it said, this is not who I am, which is painfully transparent. His homophobic comment was made with (laughs) vitriol and abandon. So that's exactly who he is. I don't know who he's kidding. Brenneman starts off by saying that he's a man of faith, which has no relevance as to whether he would say something bigoted and homophobic. His fake apology seemed directed to those who employ him, followed by a plea for someone to come to his defense. Then the announcer had another go at it on Thursday afternoon, trying to apologize again in a Cincinnati Inquirer opinion column. 
At the same time, he played naive at the origins of the slur he'd used, which is just another insult. The moral of the story has nothing to do with the mics or hot mics, which serve as a conduit, not a truth serum, intending to censor his bigotry from the broadcast, but not his co-workers, merely represents its own set of followers and follow-up questions. Does Brenneman habitually perpetuate a hostile workplace, or is this the kind of language broadly condoned by the culture of Fox Sports Ohio? If anything, <laughs> it's convenient that the mic was hot for this very revealing moment. So this kind of defense is evasive, passive, condescending, and dismissive. So unless one really truly takes responsibility for their actions and what they've said, uh, fake apologies and PR spins, you know, they just make things worse. So Brenneman's outright denial that we should deduce anything about him from his words and actions isn't dumb. It's actually a form of gaslighting. Let's get blunt. The Blunt Post with Vic. George Gascon is running for the Los Angeles District Attorney to modernize LA's criminal justice system. George is the former district attorney for the city and county of San Francisco and former assistant chief of Los Angeles Police Department. George was the first Latino to hold the office in San Francisco and the nation's first police chief to become district attorney. Since his appointment in January of 2011 as San Francisco's district attorney, George has earned a national reputation as a visionary in criminal justice reform. He has been named among top 100 lawyers in California by Daily Journal, and the Anti-Defamation League honored him with its prestigious Civil Rights Award. George, thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic. I really appreciate it. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Vic. Thank you. Well, congratulations so far on this race for district attorney, or L.A. district attorney, I should specify. Yes, uh, and I appreciate that. Well, you're creating quite a lot of buzz. In fact, New York Times called this uh, election for L.A. district attorney the most important district attorney race in America, and I tend to believe the New York Times. Yeah, I do too. So you have about 40 years of experience in law enforcement, and 30 years of that, you were a police officer. You were a cop, different uh, titles, of course. So you're coming in with quite a lot of experience. You're also a former district attorney for the city and county of San Francisco, as well as a former assistant chief of the LAPD. My first question for you would be, what is the fundamental difference between you and the incumbent, Jackie Lacey. Yeah, my evolution in, in the system and her lack of evolution. And let me go to some real specifics where things where we really differ greatly. So as a district attorney for the last nine years, I became known as a godfather of progressive prosecutors in this country. And the reason for that was because not only the work that we did in San Francisco and at the state level, but also how we worked with many other uh, progressive prosecutors around the country, helping people get elected, providing assistance. And I would say that some of the really basic differences are, number one, that Ms. Lacey believes that the system is here to punish people. I believe that the system is set up, should be, by the way, it is, it is currently set up to punish people, but it should be there to repair harm and to, and to create uh, better outcomes for an entire community rather than just simply punishing people. And what that what what flows from that basic belief is that she believes in the death penalty. I don't. She believes in prosecuting juveniles as adults. I don't because the science clearly says that juveniles. In fact, they, the science today, brain science tells us that uh, the human brain is not fully developed until we're in our mid twenties. So prosecuting a, a, a 16, 17-year-old children, really, as adults, applies not only science, but I think is completely inhumane. Uh, she has used the criminal justice system as a sword against people that have mental health problems, and that's why 
L.A. County has, a, you know, probably the biggest mental health institution in the country is L.A. County Jail. She has consistently looked the other way to police violence, uh, and she takes money from police unions. They spend over $2 million on her primary election, and they have pledged to now put uh, somewhere between 4 and $5 million for the general election. I have not taken any money from police unions, and they, frankly, they're running scared. Uh, because they believe that a greater level of accountability would come up. I don't believe in cash bail. She has, you know, she continues to seek cash bail and look for workarounds even even under current state law. So there are a lot of things, but I would say that some of the most basic ones are things like the death penalty, prosecuting children as adults, using cash bail, continuing to incarcerate the mentally ill and those that have substance abuse problems instead of looking for ways to funnel that into public health. Looking the other way at police uh, criminal behavior. Those are some of the major ones. Well, that was very thorough. Thank you very much. And uh, of course, I've been reading about you and it's um, there's a lot of praise about you by different groups and organizations in terms of the platform that you run. In fact, I think one of them called you the rehabilitation district attorney because you believe in, in really rehabilitating those that are in prison and not further punishing them. You touched on a lot of subjects that I want to talk about. And the first one, first thing I want to talk about is the racial disparity when it comes to law enforcement and such. So, and I'll, I'll read a little bit of, of my homework. So Los Angeles still leads the country in law enforcement shooting deaths. And last year it had the second highest death toll for police shootings in the nation after Phoenix, which had 21. Black residents are disproportionately victims, 24% of deaths, but only 19% of the country's population. And since 2000, only one member of law enforcement has been charged for killing a civilian. According to Black Lives Matter activists, Jackie Lacey hasn't taken the steps to address the racial disparity in the system. She has supported a do not call list that is meant to keep corrupt police officers off the witness stand. And, you know, New York Times has written about uh, your record of implementing uh, new data-driven solutions, which you spoke about to reduce racial disparity in prosecutions. But I'd like you to sort of elaborate on that, because it's something that's very important, obviously, to L.A. and Southern California community. Just if you can tell us about your plans going forward. So, you know, one of the things that I did when I was in San Francisco, I increasingly became very concerned about how could we move forward to reducing the disproportionality of the impact of the system in African Americans and other minorities, and also to explore uh, if, in addition to disproportionality, was there a disparity in the work that we did, meaning not only were we obviously having a higher representation of African-Americans in our system, mostly driven by police work, but also were there anything that we were doing intentionally or unintentionally that was treating African-Americans differently? And, you know, I explore many uh, potential avenues for training around implicit bias, and, you know, we did a lot of work in that area, but I still came to the conclusion that, first of all, you cannot root out implicit bias training because all you can do is hope that people will become aware that they have them, but that's not going to stop them necessarily from behaving sort of based on their own implicit bias because, you know, it's a subconscious behavior. Yeah. And then, of course, there's always the risk of actually explicit bias or, you know, right out racism in the system. And I came to the conclusion that we needed to explore other possibilities to deal with this problem in a way that was that would overcome the frailties of, of human nature. And that led me to reach out to the Stanford Computational Lab and, and, and without getting into you know, a long drawn out story, basically we got to the agreement that we could create artificial intelligence that would take a police report and mask all the all the references to race or proxies for race. So that a prosecutor will review an arrest report on the general crime uh, filing team, make a decision without knowing the race of the person, and then unmask the report and take a look at photos and all the other uh, non-references to race and see whether they would still do the same thing 
the system was designed in a way that would lock the first decision so the prosecutor could not take it out. Then if the second decision, now that they unmask it and they see photos and video would be different, they have to explain why and they needed a, a management approval before that could move forward. So for instance, to give you an idea of how, what would be a legitimate uh, shifting of the original decision and what would be an illegitimate shifting. So legitimate, the prosecutor has a robbery, there is a two-witness description of the, the, the assailant, and they are described somewhat different. So one person describes a male of a particular race and describes that person as six feet tall, 180 pounds, wearing blue jeans and a white shirt. And another person describes the assailant as somewhat that is 5'7", uh, 150 pounds, wearing black pants and a white shirt. Now, that, by the way, is not uncommon, right? I mean, witness identification is very unreliable, especially if it's cross-racial witness identification. So based on that information, the prosecutor would say, well, I cannot move forward because I have a conflict here, so I'm going to decline finding the case. Now, the prosecutor unmasked the report, and they see a video showing very clearly the person that was arrested as the person that's committed the robbery, now the prosecutor says, okay, now I have enough evidence to move forward based on the video, and they can then shift their original decision that gets approved and you move forward. So that would be an appropriate shifting of the original opinion. But let's give you a different one, right? So a different one, the prosecutor again makes a decision not to move forward with the robbery because of the conflicting witness identification, but when he or she unmasks the report, they realize that they have a, a green male in a green neighborhood and he or she, meaning the prosecutor, decides that green people are more prone to be uh, involved in robberies of liquor stores. You look at the video, and the video has a very hasty figure, so it's very difficult to tell the, the features of the person, never mind who the person is, which is not uncommon. Sometimes we have videos that are very poor quality, but the prosecutor, because of his or her implicit or explicit bias, decides to move forward with the case because... He or she has decided that green people commit robberies and therefore this person must commit, must have committed the robbery. That would go to a management team member and they would say, no, that's not an appropriate changing and therefore you cannot move forward. So what we did through this uh, artificial intelligence begin the process of taking race out of the picture. And by the way, I, when I made the agreement with Stanford, we did two things. Number one. We agreed that we would put the software in the public domain. So any other prosecutor that wanted to use it could. And by the way, I offered it to the LA district attorney and they refused. And number two, we agreed that, they, that in the aggregate, we would make data available to researchers and policymakers as we build out data so that perhaps better legislation or other studies could be conducted. That was a, a, a big step that we took in order to, to try to address the issues of racial disparity and disproportionality in the system, which often come all the way, you know, they, they really originate with police work and, you know, other social ills and come all the way and rely on the hands of a prosecutor. I like the, I like what the software does in taking the racial part out. How about names? Because sometimes names can be a giveaway as well. Yeah, so it does that. So it does race in proxies for race. So, like, for instance, you're right. Okay, let's say a Latinx, you know, Juan Hernandez. You know, most people are going to assume that Juan Hernandez is going to be Latinx or a neighborhood. So, you know, prosecutors know all the neighborhoods that they're counting in, right? So all of a sudden you have a crime that occurs in a neighborhood that is regularly frequented by people of a particular race. That also gets taken. So we take location off. Gotcha. Unless the location is material to the crime, uh, we take names. We take everything that has a proxy for race as well as the actual racial description. It makes sense. It's something that universities, some universities do to make sure that the students are accepted on, on the merits of their work and their experience and not based on anything else. So I really like that idea and uh, wish you the best of luck on that. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with George Gascon, who's running for LA District Attorney. So George, if I may, by your permission, on that topic, I want to go into a case that I'm very familiar with 
uh, from the very onset of it, it's Ed Buck and Jamel Moore and Timothy Dean. Uh, and of course, for those people who are listening and not familiar, is that Ed Buck, a white man in West Hollywood, uh, a gay white man, was basically uh, drugging, injecting black male with methamphetamine. And in 2017, Jamal Moore died in his apartment. And there was an outcry to arrest him. That'd be like a long investigation, something that was worthy of what had happened because there had been so many other signs to what was happening in Ed Buck's apartment. But Ed Buck was not arrested. And of course, in 2019, unfortunately, another gay black male, Timothy Dean, was found dead in his apartment with with saying signs and all of that. And even after that, he wasn't arrested. He was finally arrested after a lot of activists, a lot of uh, demonstrations and such. He was arrested for having a drug den in his apartment. And so Jackie Lacey has sort of not, she's definitely not a popular person with a lot of people who wanted justice for uh, Jamal Moore and Timothy Dean. Uh, and actually there was, there were several, several other victims who were all been interviewed. In fact, the third one almost died too. So there's a lot of distrust with the district attorney's office. Of course, it has nothing to do with you. I'd like to know what you intend to do if elected about this case specifically and cases similar going forward. Yeah, I mean, this is a, this is a perfect example of how this, how the powerful and influential in L.A. County has been allowed to sometimes get away with murder, right? Uh, mm-hmm. Not just police, but also sometimes really influential people and given the past over and over again. And, you know, I mean, this one is one of those cases that, that reeks of impropriety. You know, again, the victims were poor African-American, in this case, gay men. Uh, and obviously the, the offender, a, a very powerful white uh, individual with you know, a lot of political ties. And by the way, the, the, the prosecution really, the current prosecution is really the U.S. Uh, attorney, not, not, a, not a local prosecution. Right. Yeah. So Maggie Lacey hasn't really taken any ownership for that case, and we've seen with her in other, other cases. But this is the kind of case that, you know, cries for, for a new review with a different set of eyes. And, and unfortunately, this is not a unique case, right? We've seen, I mean, you, you like, look at the Weinstein case, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, the Weinstein case, she's not prosecuted in this case, but it became very politically uh, convenient to file the case right before the primaries uh, were coming up, uh, actually at the expense of compromising, you know, potentially compromising jury selection in the Manhattan case, uh, which was brought up to her attention, she filed anyway. And then really trying to then uh, extradite him now, right during the general election again, um, you know, it, it reeks of impropriety. This is a case that clearly should have been prosecuted by the L.A. County DA, but, you know, it languished for multiple years and is only brought forward as the elections are heating up. And then, you know, she has a press conference around herself by police personnel from the LAPD to announce that she is uh, filing a case at a time when she was actually potentially compromising jury selection that was ongoing in the case. You know, again, the manipulation of cases, but usually, but for now, with the pressure that she's receiving because of uh, my running for DA, she ignored this case and, and the many other cases involving very powerful people that have victimized women, have victimized in the case of uh, Mr. Park, obviously, Jamal Moore and Timothy Dean. So it's, it's a consistent behavior where the powerful have gotten a, a, a pass. I mean, you can go through the explosions of uh, in North County, the gas explosions and the settlement that she reaches with Southern California Edison that actually takes the capacity for individual homeowners to seek redress and really costing people millions and millions of dollars. Again, you know, it's, it's a very typical behavior that we see over and over coming from this office. Yeah, I'm glad to hear about that. In fact, um, I've personally been at a demonstration in front of Jackie Lacey's office, all transparency. So uh, I'm very interested and I enjoyed hearing what you had to say about that. You know, 
your reputation speaks for itself in terms of wanting to do away with racial profiling and people being victimized because of their race or ethnicity and such. And also you have a reputation for reducing prison population. You like to rehabilitate people in prison rather than just continue to punish them. Uh, in fact, you championed Proposition 47. It basically recategorized nonviolent felonies uh, as misdemeanors. It happened in 2014, something that Jackie Lacey opposed. So we know a lot about that, and I think that that has to do, that contributes a great deal to your popularity. What don't we know about that, about you? What isn't being talked about that we, would, that we should know? I'm not saying, I'm not asking anything personal, just you as your experience. Yeah, you know, I think, I mean, certainly as to my work, I think it's because I, as you will point it out, nearly four decades in the public eye and, you know, having been uh, chief of police in two major cities, I mean, Arizona taking on your very publicly in San Francisco, SDA, you know, taking on the San Francisco Police Department. And so I, I think there's a lot of a lot of media coverage here. So I think as to my work, there's not a lot that is not known. I mean, I, I, I can tell you, I mean, you talk about some of the things that I'm very proud of. But I mean, I'll tell you one thing that I consider a mistake on my part, and that was uh, as we reduce incarceration in San Francisco, and I did that very quickly. And, and by the way, Crime continued to go down. In fact, violent crime in San Francisco during my time as the end went down proportionally, whereas in L.A. under Jackie Lacey has gone up by nearly 30% in the county and almost 50% in the city, which really speaks to the lack of correlation between high levels of incarceration and safety because she incarcerated four times the rate wow. that we did in San Francisco. But I'll tell you a mistake that I made that, not a lot of people know this, right? So we reduce the jail population in San Francisco by around 30% every day, sometimes as high as 35%. And my intent uh, was not only to reduce our jail population, but start taking some of the money away from the sheriff's department and giving it to uh, mental health service and diversion, which is where we're having a lot of problems, like every other community, not having enough services to divert the mentally ill. Sure. And, and I feel, right, I mean, I could never get the board of supervisors in San Francisco, the mayor, to pay proportionally that much money out of the sheriff department and put it into services. To the contrary, the sheriff department continued to get, not only keep the budget, but they kept uh, increasing their budgets to the point that sometimes we joked around that there would be as many people in the jail as there were employees of the sheriff department. And wow. that was a failure that I take some ownership for because I was never politically shrewd enough to build a coalition around this issue to move that money around. And one of the things that if I were to be elected DA in LA, I plan to do the same thing, meaning that we would reduce population in our jail. But I, I am working on, and I'm very open about, you know, creating coalitions to to work with the Board of Supervisors, but to make sure that that, as a, as a workload gets reduced by the Sheriff Department and even by my own office where we're in this trial, that that money gets shifted then into the services that are more likely to provide a better outcome for our community, you know, looking through the lens of public health. So a lot of people don't know that, but that's one area that I would look at. I mean, from a personal point of view, stuff that people other than my family knows is that I'm, I'm, you know, I... I'm generally a very simple person. I, you know, I enjoy just really quiet time with my family. And so I'm not one of those that has a, I like simple things in life. You know, even when going out for dinner or something, I, I, I'd rather go to a good taco stand sometimes, you know, or, or a nice uh, place that has, you know, kind of like more home-cooked stuff than I would a fancy place. Well, that sounds really nice to me, and thank you for sharing that. I guess we can't get it all, all of the time, so, but, you know, it's good that you tried. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with George Gascon, who's running for L.A. District Attorney. And on topic of budgets, I'm reminded that following the murder of George Floyd and the sort of revitalized movement of Black Lives Matter, Black Lives Matter was a movement that had been happening for a long time, but there was a call to reduce the budget of law enforcement agencies. And Mayor Eric Garcetti 
reduced it by what most, most people consider a very minimal amount. How do you feel about that? Yeah, look, it's interesting, you know, you mentioned Prop 47, and actually the authors of Prop 47, right. one of the major goals was to reduce the disproportionality uh, of drug policy, because uh, basically before Prop 47, you know, possession of crack cocaine was a felony, always, and we had our prisons were full of uh, African-American males, mostly, some women, but mostly males, uh, for possession for personal use of crack cocaine and other drugs, we had drugs like methamphetamine, it was mostly used by whites, uh, and it was what we call a wobbler, which means that they could be prosecuted as a felony or a misdemeanor, and often white people were prosecuted as a misdemeanor, so, you know, so here's this proportionality. So one of our goals was to reduce incarceration for the African-American and Latin community, but the other part was to take the savings from that over-incarceration and bring it back to communities for mental health services and education, and Prop 47 actually delivered on that at a tune of around $500 million a year. In fact, L.A. County and L.A. City combined have received over $50 million in money from Prop 47. So I believe that actually as we reduce the footprint of the criminal justice system, that money needs to start shifting uh, into services that will provide a different level of service. I think that what BLM has talked about that now has become much more palatable to people is there are a lot of things that police and prosecutors and sheriff do that don't necessarily need to be done by us, right? So starting with, you know, there are a lot of types of services that we're better off hiring other verticals, whether mental health professionals or social workers. You know, we don't need social workers with a bass and a gun. We need real social workers to be doing some of the things that we need in the community. Likewise, mental health, we need people that actually are clinicians that are trained to handle those things in a way very different than what a, a police officer normally do. As we're reducing that, that money should start going into, you know, paying for that shifting of responsibilities. And I and I do believe that eventually the reductions in, in law enforcement budgets need to come down more, much more than, than what we're seeing so far. You know, typically you're seeing law enforcement budgets take 50, 51, 55% of a city you know, sort of unrestricted, uh, you know, fund expenditures. And that is a phenomenon that has occurred in the last few years, the last two or three decades. And that money has come from education, social services, mental health. As we start to reduce our work, again, we need to start bringing that money to the services that are more likely to provide a higher quality of service for our communities. And they're going to decriminalize and reduce our rates of incarceration. So I believe that while some of this is going to take some time, uh, I think that it needs to be intentional and it needs to be very clear. It should not be something that we do willy-nilly this year. A little bit, I hope that it goes away and that everybody forgets about it. Actually, we should. Well said, and kudos to you for discussing mental health so much. We we need to continue to talk about uh, mental health to take away the stigma. And uh, we need people like you to talk about it. And thank you for that. I know we're running out of time, so I have just two quick questions. One of them is you've gotten a lot of praise from the American Civil Liberties Union as well as the LGBTQ community. You were endorsed by Stonewall Democratic Club, which is the most important LGBT advocacy organization in the country. To what do you attribute your, your popularity if there are like top three items, you would say? said. And lastly, is there anything that I haven't brought up? Anything you'd like to add, even perhaps a call to action? 
Yes, this is going to be a historic election. We need to have different leadership in the White House, and I'm, you know, I'm going to support hopefully the winning Biden-Harris uh, ticket. I think that you know our nation cannot afford another four years of the current administration. Indeed. The outside impact that the L.A. County DA has over the criminal justice system, not only in the state of California, but in the rest of the country. We are the largest county by far. We really have no peer because when you look at a place like New York, as some people say, well, New York has 8 million people, but New York has 5 DAs. L.A. County has 10 million people, 1 DA. Uh, we have the largest jail. We have we incarcerate more people than anybody else. We uh, proportionally, not just in raw numbers, we send more people to death row in L.A. County than many other southern states combined. So things that people never would think about. We've had 600, approximately 600 police killings in the last seven years, as you indicated, one single prosecution. So this race is really about fundamental shifting of the criminal justice system, reimagining the system at a very historic moment. And I believe that I can bring that to the table. Conversely, if the, if the incumbent were to win, basically we're going to compete against some of the same impacting the rest of the, not only the county, but the state and the country. So I think this is a, a time where good people need to come together. And by the way, all this is done without increasing safety in our community. In fact, violent crime is up nearly 30% in the county. So you can't even say that the current work has actually made the community safer. So we need to move in a different direction, but that's going to require good people to vote. And, and it's going to be such a critical election for so many reasons. So I'm hoping that those that were, if my message resonates, that they talk about it, that they, they share it with others, and hopefully that they show up in November and, and vote for me. Indeed. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with George Gascon, who's running for L.A. District Attorney. And your website, if you would share that with us. Of course, georgegascon.org. And you can go there, you can see uh, the policy papers that we put out there. By the way, I purposely put in that website the things that I plan to do because I want it to be like a contract with me and the voters of the county. So you can go and see what I'm saying. Not only am I saying it orally, but I'm putting it in writing because I want you to hold me accountable. I think that you will see a lot of stuff there about, you know, how we would move to, to reimagine the criminal justice system in L.A. County. There are also opportunities for volunteer, uh, for those that want to volunteer, and certainly for those that are able to contribute. If you can contribute, we would love that, you know, our Average contribution is around $45 now. We just have a lot of people giving us money, which is wonderful because when poor people give money, they usually are taking it from some other necessity. Yep. Uh, having grown up poor, I know what that's like. So, so it's nice to see that, that we're, we're getting those low dollar contributions because it really talks about people that really are being impacted by the system in the worst way. Fantastic. Thank you for that. So it's georgegascon.org. George, thank you so much for taking the time to be on the show. You are always welcome. Please come back before the election on The Blunt Post with Vic. Thank you, Vic. And I would, uh, you know, come back around somewhere earlier forward. Love to do it. Sounds good to me. Thank you again. Take care, Vic. All right. Have a good one. Bye. Okay, bye-bye. That was the honorable and uh, very popular George Gascon, who is running against the incumbent Jackie Lacey in the L.A. District Attorney race. Good luck to you, George, and thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic. The Blunt Post with Vic. Hal Bastian is a 37-year commercial real estate agent, veteran, who has been a leader in the downtown LA renaissance since 1994. Fondly called Mr. Downtown and Mayor of Downtown, uh, by many people, he has helped recruit over 300 restaurants, bars, nightclubs, and retailers, and facilitated building of many major commercial developments in downtown LA. Hal has been instrumental in the construction of over 20,000 residential units and has helped recruit thousands of new downtown LA residents. Now he's a consultant and commercial real estate broker with major properties. Hal is part of the LA Alliance for Human Rights, which has sued the city and county of Los Angeles to shelter the homeless and provide them with physical and mental health care, including treatment for drug and alcohol addiction. 
Hal Bastian, thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic. How are you doing? Terrific. Thanks for having me, Vic. Of course. It's a pleasure. I've known you for a long time, and I know that people call you Mr. Downtown LA or Mayor of Downtown and all of that. And I've walked down the street with you. and had Pretty much everyone know who you were and said hello. So I wanted to talk to you about, well, a lot of other things, but of course, about downtown LA and what is happening amid COVID-19 and all the other exciting things that you're working on coming up. Great, let's do it. So what is, you know, you have a unique perspective because you know downtown and you are intertwined with downtown from the CEOs and, and all the heads of organizations down to restaurant owners and small store owners and all of that. What is the, what's your perspective on the state of downtown in 2020 right now? Well, Vic, you know, we've spent about 25 years bringing downtown back from, you know, bringing a pretty sleepy place that nobody wanted to be to a, a place where 80,000 people live today. And, you know, with a vibrant, you know, restaurant scene and bars and nightclubs and, you know, tech companies going into the, the arts district. And we were, we were just rocking, you know, till March of this year. And then we, along with the rest of the entire planet Earth, were shut down. And, you know, it's had a big impact on us uh, in, in many different ways. But um, over time, we're, we'll be coming back, and you really can't stop the momentum and the belief in downtown that we have put together. So the, the answer is uh, things are, are quiet now, and they're going to get better. Yeah, I was actually in downtown last night. I went to pick up food from one of my favorite restaurants, Industrial, at Grand and Sixth. And I noticed so many restaurants were closed. They weren't even offering a delivery or pickup or anything like that. And I just wonder what kind of, like, is this happening more in downtown? Or it's just sort of example of what happens everywhere? Well, I think the issue for us uh, in downtown is uh, other more suburban areas perhaps have gotten more into the outdoor, you know, dining component. But we, we have a lot of people walking to up, up and down the sidewalks because we have a big residential population now. There's a number of restaurants where it's just not easy to do dining on the streets because in some areas the, the sidewalks are a little bit more narrow right. and you got to be able to get wheelchairs by and all that, that, that good stuff. So we're not doing as much alfresco dining as I'm seeing in other parts of the city. And I think that's what you noticed. That makes sense. You work with, um, with major properties on commercial real estate. How is that sort of like that part of the industry going? Is, are things as you know, business as usual or that has slowed down? Well, no, it's, it's, it's slow down is, uh, is a, a polite way of saying it. You know, uh, anytime there is uncertainty, it's not good uh, for real estate in terms of people making long-term commitments. So just imagine you're an office tenant who's considering a relocation. You don't know whether or not there's going to be a vaccine for COVID. And then you have to decide how to design your space and how far the desks need to be apart, which determines how many square feet you take. And I think everybody's doing a wait-and-see attitude because they don't want to make a 10-year leasing decision on real estate, which is a very expensive proposition, and then you know not have to uh, take as much space or maybe need to take more space or, or being landlocked, uh, so to speak, in a situation where an existing tenant uh, would need to grow because of social distancing requirements today, but they can't grow because there's other tenants that are encumbering space adjacent to them. And similarly with retail and restaurants, same, same deal. How do you know what, what kind of space you should lease when you don't know how you have to space your people? So right now, it's super-duper quiet, and um, it's hard for all of us uh, in the industry. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jaramie, and you're listening to my interview with Hal Bastian, who is called Mr. Downtown LA or the Mayor of Downtown. It, a, a lot of the things that you talked about sort of hap is happening in other cities as well. And I'm wondering, I'm sure the issue of affordable housing and homelessness is, is something that affects downtown more than most other cities. Is that the only thing that's more of a unique problem or I should say challenge for downtown? Yeah, it, it's more for downtown because we have the Skid Row uh, area on the eastern side of downtown Los Angeles. And Vic, there's a reason that we have a Skid Row. Uh, people vote where they live, 
And uh, until we started converting our old office buildings back to residential, not a lot of people lived in downtown L.A. Let me paint a little picture for you. In 1924, 100,000 people lived in downtown Los Angeles. Uh, when I got here in 1994 to start doing real estate in downtown, we had about 18,000 people, wow. uh, many of whom uh, were really disenfranchised uh, and living in, in the, the Skid Row area. By the way, that uh, depopulation of downtown happened after World War II when we started the suburban process. And, you know, if you as a government have to make a decision as to where to provide services for people that need them, whether it's a mission and housing or things like that, or, or maybe some mental health care services, and you tried to put those kinds of facilities into Northridge or Brentwood, you would be voted out of office very fast. So since there were very few voters in downtown, remember those 18,000 people, really starting around 1960, I'd say, is when we really started growing that. And so uh, homelessness and mental illness is a crisis nationally, uh, certainly in the county of Los Angeles, but in downtown in particular. It's a great way of really explaining the, the last hundred years and the evolution of downtown from what it was to what happened and then what it is now. It makes it clear as to why we have such a huge homeless population. You work with uh, LA Alliance for Human Rights, which, let me, let me just have you tell us about that work and, and what you're doing. Well, sure. So I think everybody has been noticing for particularly the last two or three years that uh, the encampments uh, all over the city have been getting worse and worse and worse. And uh, people are having mental health care crises uh, more and more and more. And it is uh, for a number of reasons. We've been depopulating the prisons in the state of California because federal judges have uh, ordered us to do so. So people get released from prison, but there is no mechanism to welcome them back into the society. Uh, they find their way, you know, to Skid Row and to sedation and drugs uh, and, and alcohol. Uh, that, that's one thing that has caused the rise uh, in the number of, of people uh, that are here. You know, not everybody who is, um, not everybody who's homeless is, is a drug uh, addict or, or an alcoholic, but it's a very, very big percentage of the people that are experiencing homeless uh, in downtown. And so um, the reason that you see the encampments is there's been a series of federal lawsuits that have enabled people to live on the streets, and we can't ask them to move, um, according to the, the current law. Um, there was a big case decided recently uh, in the Ninth Circuit Court of Appeals, which uh, governs the nine western states and it's called martin v boise and basically what what that decision says is that unless a uh, a city has a shelter bed for each and every person in its jurisdiction it can't force one person to go into housing so people could just refuse it i should say shelter not housing so people can just refuse your help and there's nothing you can do to say you have to get off the streets hmm. um by the way that law uh, affects, again, the nine western states. So the kinds of encampments that you see uh, in downtown and under the freeways and things like that could be occurring on the parkway in front of somebody's home in Beverly Hills, too. So what the L.A. Alliance for Human Rights is, we're a group of people that believe in human rights. And although um, homeless people may have uh, the right to be on the street, according to Martin V. Boise, we want to force the city of Los Angeles and the county of Los Angeles to provide the shelter that's required by the Boise decision faster. So we uh, filed a lawsuit on March 10th of this year, right before COVID uh, exploded. And uh, the, the idea behind this lawsuit, there's a lot of different causes of action, which include ADA because the streets are impassable by somebody who uh, is in a wheelchair, for example. Um, you know, is your property worth more with a nice, you know, clean sidewalk or for, with people literally, you know, dying outside? So there's a taking of property value. And it's a pretty complex uh, lawsuit that we filed. But the bottom line is because of nimbyism, people are, are concerned about homelessness, but they just don't want the solutions to be in their neighborhood. So what this lawsuit is designed to do is to force uh, every uh, every council district to be part of the solution 
and certainly for the region as for the the region of uh, LA County, uh, we could we couldn't afford to sue every of the all the 88 cities in LA County. So we sued the city of LA and the county of LA, who's in charge of mental health care services. Right. And people can look us up as uh, the LA Alliance for Human Rights. Just Google it. Fantastic. So you touched on something important, which is the transition between people being released from prisons and, and jails. And we need a system that rehabilitates people and helps them with maybe jobs and education and housing and all of that. And that's definitely lacking, that transitional help that a lot of Western industrial com uh, countries have, but we don't have it. And, and we just let people off prison and you know just don't give them any tools. Right. So the, the big problem is there's all kinds of solutions and programs within the state of California, but knowing how to access them and where to ask for help and who to go to is Byzantine. It's very, very difficult to understand uh, the process. So there's really no coordinated system to hook up the need of the person that's being released with the services that could be found in a particular city in the state of California. And that's our problem. And so you could spend all the money in the world uh, on these issues, but unless people know how to access it and get the services, it's difficult. So let me ask you this and put you on the spot for a second. In terms of LA Alliance for Human Rights and the lawsuits and all of that, who is holding this back? Who is, who is the problem, per se, since you guys are the solution trying to do something about the problem? Who or what entity well, or organization? Well, there's no single entity okay. that, that it's, it's taken 60 years to get this bad. I think the, the issue, again, is one of, um, one of people being concerned about the problem but not being, um, wanting to be part of the solution. So ultimately what this lawsuit is designed to do is to give political cover to the elected officials, the 15 city council people, the, um, the mayor of the city of Los Angeles, from NIMBYs. So the, the court is going to order that shelters be placed in the 15 council districts, and there won't be a thing that anybody can do to stop it. And so that gives cover to the electeds. Otherwise, if the electeds do it, people will vote them out in the next, ele next election. But if a federal judge is forcing it to be done, it gets done. Listen, Vic, we didn't get any kind of civil rights in this country. We're still working on that, obviously. But we didn't get any kind of civil rights in this country due to people in Washington voting those rights in. It had to be done through federal lawsuits and violence, just like we're seeing now. And uh, that's where it started. And we're not going to solve the homeless problem and the mental health care problem either through democracy, because the politicians don't have the political will to do it. Exactly. As they say, you cannot solve a problem at the level at which it was created. Well, there's no single creator of this problem. It's a, it's a very, uh, very complex issue. Yeah, but the important thing is that you guys are in action and, and doing something. Yeah, we're, we're doing something about it. It's taken us about a million dollars to get this far into the litigation. Um, you know, lawyers are not uh, inexpensive. Uh, our lawyers have done a great job at discounting their fees, but it has required hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of hours of research to come up with a lawsuit that can, you know, stand muster. So I've been raising money for it. This is The Blunt Post with Vic. I am your host, Vic Jurami, and you're listening to my interview with Hal Bastian, who is called Mr. Downtown LA or the mayor of downtown. Wow. So let me, um, since I put you on the spot, just ask you one more question, then I'll move on. Do you think uh, Mayor Garcetti has done a good job? Well, here's the deal. I like uh, Eric Garcetti a, a lot. He's a, a great human being, but it's not so much the mayor who uh, I fault with our, our current situation. It's our city attorney. So our city attorney, Mike Fuhr, uh, has agreed to settle a number of lawsuits who we in the community believed he should have litigated, uh, and he didn't do it. And that's why you're seeing what you're seeing in front of you today. We said, no, we can't. We can't make it okay to normalize people being on the streets uh, in encampments and filth. And Mike settled a case that was brought, and so our hands got our hands got tied. So uh, I, I place it more with the uh, city attorney, but he's a separately elected public official, and I think the mayor could have done a better job than he's. I would have rather see the mayor spend more time dealing with this issue than trying to get the Olympics here in uh, you know 2028. Yeah, it, it reminds me of the new Rose Garden. I thought 
really with everything that's happening having a new rose garden is what's uh, on uh, the white house's agenda that was very interesting so how you obviously do so many different things and you're involved with all sort of facets in downtown LA and and whereabouts what are you most active or where are you most active and busy right now is it residential i mean commercial real estate or it's your consulting work or with LA Alliance for Human Rights well it's it's kind of all of the above you know as a commercial real estate broker what I'm spending time doing right now is touching base with people that I've done business with in the past just to keep, you know, top of mind so when we're in a position of confidence, we can do some real estate deals and do some leases. You know, I love doing real estate deals that are on the street level that affect the public realm and affect, affect the you know, pedestrian experience, whether it's a retailer or a restaurant. And so that, that as I mentioned, is really stalled out at the moment. So with that that time that I have, I've had to pivot and figure out other ways to earn an income. So one of the things that I'm doing is I'm doing a really a motivational talk to employees of companies that are fatigued by the COVID situation and uncertainty. So, you know, I'm known for being a pretty uplifting person and I love helping people and mentoring them and giving them some strategies and to get through to get through hard times. And I will tell you the only difference between me being interviewed uh, by you for this program and being a homeless person in the streets is if I ever drink alcohol again or use drugs because I've been in recovery from alcohol and drugs for about 19 and a half years and there but for the grace of God go I. Congratulations. So, thank you. It's a, it's a good start and uh, one of the reasons that I'm so involved with the LA Alliance for Human Rights is uh, it may be people's civil right to be homeless but I think we're violating their human rights by allowing them to kill themselves in the streets. I'm spending a lot of time on that. And so getting back to the Zoom calls, you know, I just got to get on. I had one the other day for 45 people. And I, I just kind of tell my personal story of kind of get, getting through a lot of, of hard times in my life and different kinds of tools that I've uh, adopted to deal with, with stress and to, you know, reframe things so you can be more positive about it. And they seem to like it. And I earn a fee doing it. So that's one of the things I'm spending a lot of time doing uh, today. I'm also working on, you know, affordable housing. We have a, we have a housing crisis. One of the reasons we have a housing crisis is from the time a developer buys a piece of land in the city of Los Angeles to the time that they open the doors for somebody to live there can be four to seven years. And if you want to know why housing is expensive, try buying a piece of land and getting absolutely no income on it for seven years. I mean, you, you've, got to, you've got to get it back later on. So the, the city has to streamline the ability for, for the development community to build, uh, to build buildings and build housing. If we could build more housing, the price of it will come down. It's a supply and demand thing. So that's what I'm spending time on now is really working with developers and, and politicians and the public policy arena to help encourage that. Yeah, I always say that there's nothing wrong with development. Development is what keeps a city or a country uh, vital and new and modern. Uh, it just has to be managed uh, growth and responsible development. Otherwise, you know, we'd be in the same place we are now, which according to the Huffington Post, if half a million units, housing units, were available in an instant, that would barely take care of California's housing problem. Yeah, that's taken, that's, <laughs> it's taken decades for us to achieve that. And uh, we're not going to get out of it overnight, but nor can we use it to daunt us so much that we don't try. Yeah. I'm going to ask you one more thing because I, I, I'm curious. Tell me a good news, something really positive that's happening in downtown. Well, the good news is that people, notwithstanding COVID, uh, understand that it's really neat to live in an area where you can walk out the front door and go grocery shopping or go to the pharmacy or go to the Grand Central Market and not get into your car. And, uh, you know, people were spending two to three hours a good day getting to downtown Los Angeles from, you know, suburban areas to go to their office. And my office is a mile from my, my home. I live at third and spring two blocks south of City Hall. So when you're not commuting, uh, you have time to do other things like exercise and spend time with your dog and do volunteer work. So for many, many years, I, I have lived in downtown. I've lived here since 2001 and worked down here since 1994. 
And there's just so much more that I can do uh, because I'm not spending time in my car. That indeed is true. I do want to uh, say thank you for sharing about your sobriety. And again, congratulations on 19 plus years. So how, for those who want to get in touch with you or learn about what you're up to, how can they do that? Well, they can uh, email me at hal at halbastion.com or they can go to my website, uh, halbastion.com. And I also have videos uh, about downtown that people can find by looking up Hal Bastion on YouTube. Super. Thank you for being on the Blonde Post with Vic, Hal. Always good talking to you. Thanks a lot. And remember, everybody, go to uh, Google LA Alliance for Human Rights and read all about us. And if you can, make a donation to help save people's lives. Thanks a lot. Super. Thanks, Hal. Bye-bye. That was Hal Bastion, the symbolic mayor of downtown LA, as he's called Hal, thank you for being on The Blunt Post with Vic today. Appreciate your time. The Blunt Post with Vic. I want to read you three great tweets uh, from last few days uh, as today's quotes. The first one is from Senator Bernie Sanders. And he wrote, over one million Americans filed for unemployment this week. Republicans in the Senate are doing nothing to provide relief. The second one is from Congresswoman Maxine Waters, and she wrote, For three years, I warned the American people and my colleagues that this president was a threat to our democracy. Yet here we are today voting on a measure to save the Postal Service because it is being sabotaged by a desperate president in order to cheat in the 2020 elections. And the last one is by Congresswoman Katie Porter. She wrote, Imagine being completely unqualified to lead one of the most important services in the country, but still getting the job. Louis DeJoy doesn't have to imagine. Before we go, I'd like to thank my producer, Ricky Herrera, for his tireless work on The Blunt Post with Vic. And of course, thank you for joining me today. Uh, Please tune in next Monday at 7 a.m. for another episode. For more information, you can visit thebluntpostwithvic.com. You can also follow me on Instagram and Twitter. And the handle is at Vic Jarami. That's at V-I-C-G-E-R-A-M-I. The Blunt Post with Vic.